Good evening. It's been a while since I've been up here um, to get back to systematic theology. We are now continuing with session number 44, and we are continuing to look at redemption. It's God's work, God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And our structure for this part of the study is to go through a logical order of God's application of his salvation benefits to his people. We go through it systematically because God is a God of order. Um, God doesn't do things higgledy-piggledy. He's a God of order. And this, uh, the way in which salvation is applied to us in, within time is according to a structure that the Reformed have, have recognized. And that order of application is what they've called the ordo salutis, and that's just Latin for the order of salvation. And different Reformed theologians, they differ slightly on the order, but I'm presenting the order as they're printed in your notes, and I won't go through it again. They're there in your notes. And, but in the last study, we, we finished with step 1b, which is regeneration, or the new birth. The new birth is the gateway to the rest of the application of redemption to the elect. It's the gateway to it all, the new birth. Before the new birth, our hearts were corrupt. Proverbs 4.23 says this about our hearts. It's the core of who we are. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In previous studies, I compared the heart to the headwaters of streams. With a river, if the headwaters are the source, if it's contaminated and corrupt, the waters downstream will be contaminated and corrupt as well. And the proverb tells us that from our heart flow the streams of life, from the heart. We looked at three streams that come from the headwaters, the heart. The streams are the mind, the will, and the affections. The mind, the will, and the affections. All three of those are corrupt before the new birth. But in the new birth, the Holy Spirit removes the corrupt heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart of flesh. The headwaters are no longer corrupt. So the down, what's downstream, that changes too. The new birth, regeneration, comes before all the other steps in this ordo salutis, the order of salvation. It comes first. The new birth has to come first because until God changes our heart, we cannot have repentance unto life and we cannot have saving faith. Tonight, we're going to start looking at the first response that God enables in us as a result of the new birth. That first response that is enabled by the new birth is twofold. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. Now you notice that those are numbered in your list 2A and 2B. And the reason I number them 2A and 2B and not like 2 and 3 is because these two steps, they don't really have a logical order between them. They logically happen together. They're two sides of the same coin, basically. In fact, the theologian Gerhardus Voss packages both saving faith and repentance unto life under a single term, conversion. When's the last time you heard that conversion, to be converted? I think we should use that term a lot more often. When the Holy Spirit brings an elect person to the event of conversion, he applies both repentance unto life and saving faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The new birth, regeneration, 
has to logically come first before conversion. The new birth is a, a work of creation within us that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in a mysterious way, and it's below our level of consciousness. But once God gives the new birth, the next steps happen consciously. Once God, the Holy Spirit, causes us to be regenerated, born again, it is impossible for that person to not gain saving faith. And we're not only aware of the next steps, but we take part in those steps. We now begin to use this new heart that God created within us with the, the, mind, the change of mind, the change of will, and the change of affections. We begin to use those things. You know, there's one Scottish theologian who phrased this first use of our new heart like this. He said, faith is the first vital breath of the newborn life. No sooner is the man regenerate than he breathes, so that faith, without any time lag, lays hold of the righteousness of God. But even though we're actively and consciously involved in conversion, it's still the gift of God. We are still God's project. It is still God working in us. The theologian who listed the Ordo Salutis, the way you see it in your notes tonight, lists repentance as 2A and saving faith as 2B. You know, it doesn't really matter which gets 2A and 2B, since both happen together. So the way I'd like us to look at it is to handle the topic of saving faith first. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three studies. And then for the fourth study, we'll look at repentance unto life. And the reason for that is because there's a very real sense in which repentance sort of um, emerges from faith. So I think it's important to understand saving faith first before we get to repentance. What's the definition of saving faith? The Westminster Confession of Faith defines saving faith with three parts, three elements. This is the way that saving faith has traditionally been understood among the Reformed. The Confession says this, the principal acts of saving faith are Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. There's a lot there to unpack. You know, we can word this a little bit differently and say that the elements of saving faith are three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. As we go on in the study, we're going to look at those three elements separately. Once we define saving faith as involving knowledge, assent, and trust, we can see that the new birth, it does have to come first before saving faith. In the new birth, God works alone to replace our corrupt heart with a new heart. The result is that the, the streams from the heart, the mind, the will, and the affections are all foundationally changed. Saving faith, it involves the mind, it involves the will, and it involves the affections. All of these are involved with saving faith. First, saving faith requires knowledge of statements of truth about salvation and about Christ. And we have to be able to understand that knowledge. And it requires a changed mind to be able to understand it. Before regeneration, our minds were hostile toward God. So we couldn't grasp what is spiritual. And I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 
5 to 9 next, if you'd like to follow along, Romans chapter 8. Paul here writes of this hostility of mind. Romans 8, starting at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Once we are born again, we have redeemed minds. Our minds are no longer set on the things of the flesh, and we can now comprehend what is revealed in Scripture. And secondly, saving faith requires assent. And what that means is just agreement with the knowledge of revealed statements of truth. So once someone preaches the gospel to us, we're now confronted with knowledge. But most people who hear the gospel don't understand it, and on top of that, they don't agree with it. Most people reject it. Assent to the gospel, agreeing with it that it's true, is an act of the will. In a previous session, we defined the will as the internal power to make choices. We also saw that our will can only choose what our nature delights in. Before the new birth, our nature was corrupt. So our will was in bondage to that corrupt nature. We could not choose to obey the gospel by believing the gospel because our will didn't delight in spiritual things. In our unsaved state, we were guilty of sinful unbelief. Our will was obstinate against the things of God. In order to come to Christ for salvation, we must assent to the truths of the gospel. But genuine assent, it's impossible for the unredeemed will. In a previous study, we saw that the unredeemed person doesn't really truly have free will. He has free agency. In other words, he makes real choices, choices that are voluntary and choices that he's responsible for, but his will is still in bondage to his sinful nature. I'm going to read from the Gospel of John next, starting in chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said this about our will to genuinely believe the gospel and come to him. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father draws a person, they're unable to apply their will to genuine belief in the gospel. They're unable to come to Christ in saving faith outside of the work of the Father drawing them to this. A change of a person's will is absolutely necessary to enable them to assent to this knowledge of the gospel, to agree to it. And that change comes only through the new birth. Now I'm going to go back a chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And I'll read verses 37 to 40. And in this section, Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders about their unwillingness to come to Christ for salvation. 
John chapter 5, starting in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse. The Jewish leaders were definitely known for searching the scriptures. The Greek word used here tells us they made the most careful and thorough effort in searching and investigating scripture. But their story is tragic. They spent huge amounts of time and energy studying the scriptures, but they missed the whole point of the scriptures. The whole point of the scriptures is Christ. Jesus said, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. The Jewish leaders thought that study of the scriptures was an end in itself. That just the study alone brought eternal life. The Rabbi Hillel wrote that the more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. Jewish leaders stopped right there. They diligently studied and missed the whole point, which is that they would come to Christ. They thought they had eternal life just in the activity of searching and studying. But then we get to Jesus' statement in verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The whole point of the scriptures was standing there in front of them. The true way to eternal life was right there before their eyes. But what kept them from eternal life was three words. Yet you refuse. The New American Standard Translation brings out the force of the Greek when it translates this as, and you are unwilling to come to me. Their unredeemed will was bound by their sin nature. In their unsaved state, their will, their power to make choices, couldn't make a choice to have faith in Christ. The new birth and the change in our will that comes with the new birth is necessary to have saving faith. Then the third element, trusting in Christ and in Christ alone is necessary as a component of saving faith. And this involves the affections or what we love. Before the new birth, our affections were on the things of the world. And this led us to idols of various kinds. You know, idols don't have to be statues of metal or gold. The unredeemed find their purpose in living for various things of the world, like money and pleasure. An idol can also be some other means than Christ for salvation. When you're trusting in something other than Christ to save you, that's an idol. We think we can keep God's law well enough to save ourselves. We think that we can just be a good person and our good deeds will outweigh our sins at the judgment. Or in some people, their corrupt affections lead them just to atheism. And that casts away any chance at loving God in favor of loving the world. Trusting in false ways of salvation is trusting in idols, in false gods who will just accept our best efforts. Before regeneration, our affections were toward those idols of the world. 
saving faith in Christ means trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. Not only do I accept that the gospel is true, but it is true for me personally that I trust in Christ. All of our eggs are in one basket. Saving faith in Christ requires our affections to be changed from leaning on what cannot save to leaning on the work of Christ alone. Before regeneration, our affections were corrupt. So if we acknowledged a need for salvation at all, we didn't trust Christ alone. Our affections were on some idol, whether the idol was salvation through self-effort, or if by Christ, then it would be Christ plus something. I like what David wrote in Psalm 62, and I'm going to read from that next, Psalm 62. And in that Psalm, David's enemies thought they could bring David down by taking advantage of some weakness in David's defense. David, at that point, needed reassurance that God would save him. And he contemplated the fact that God alone can save. I'll read from Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Spurgeon preached this about the connection between saving faith and the affections, and I'll quote from Spurgeon here. Oh, may God give to everyone here present the faith which I have been talking about. Perhaps some of you have never trusted your souls with Christ. You know that faith is the way of salvation. Why do you not follow it? Simply trust him. Simply trust him. Simply trust him now. It is wonderful the power of faith to change the heart. When you trust a man, you love him. You cannot be an enemy to a man in whom you trust. The effect of faith upon the affections is marvelous. It changes their whole nature and bent. This is a reason why the monergistic work of the new birth, the work of God alone, is what monergistic means. This is a reason why that monergistic work of the new birth has to logically come before saving faith God must work alone to change our affections so that we can exercise our new affections in saving faith. One of the elements of saving faith is trust, to trust Christ alone. And like Spurgeon said, when you trust a man, you love him. All of this, the need we have for change in the mind, the will, the affections before we can have saving faith. That's why the ordo salutis, the order of salvation that you see in your notes, that's why the way it is the way it is. Once again, you'll see in your notes where the logical order of salvation is listed. Faith in Jesus Christ comes after regeneration. The old man is incapable of saving faith. Instead, saving faith is the response to the new birth. I'm going to read next from the epistle of 1 John, chapter 5. And in this letter, John is telling his readers to resist any doctrine that does not lead to loving others and to resist false doctrine concerning the person of Christ. 
And it's likely that John was here refuting the doctrine of a false teacher named Serinthus. And that was a doctrine that Jesus and the Christ were separate, with Jesus only being a mere man. Now, as we read 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to see John apply a doctrinal test to show the church that Serinthus was a false teacher. But this verse also shows something about the order of salvation. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's the order of faith and regeneration. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It is only those who have been born of God who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Saving faith in this true doctrine has to follow being born of God. Even though faith is our conscious response and the result of the new birth, we're not ultimately the source of faith. Faith is a gift of God, given to his elect at the moment of the application of redemption. I'm going to turn next to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll see the gracious nature of this gift. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this passage comes as part of a larger section where Paul is contrasting what we were before redemption versus what we are after redemption. And this huge before and after contrast, it's not due to our own efforts. I can't point to myself and say, you know what, I was just more spiritual and I was just smarter than my unsaved next door neighbor because I'm saved. Paul emphasizes that our salvation is by grace. Grace is God giving us as a gift something that we didn't work for and do not deserve. When God grants salvation, it's not like wages at a workplace. A paycheck is earned, but salvation is not earned. Verse 9 says that our salvation is not a result of works. So we have no reason to brag or boast. Instead, verse 8 tells us that it's by grace that God saves us through faith. Then verse 8 goes on and says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, different commentators look at this phrase differently, where it says, And this is not your own doing. When Paul says, And this is not your own doing, what's Paul talking about when he says the word this? When he says, This is not your own doing. Is Paul referring to salvation or faith being the thing that's not our own doing? You know, I looked at the Greek, and the Greek grammar doesn't solve it. And good commentators have disagreed with some saying that Paul's referring to salvation not being our own doing, and others saying that Paul's referring to faith not being our own doing. 
The conclusion I came to is I think Paul is referring in some sense to both. Salvation and everything associated with it, including faith, is not our own doing. Salvation and faith that brings salvation is a gracious gift of God, something we don't deserve. I didn't just start having saving faith one day because I decided to, and out of the power of my own resources. Saving faith is a gift of God. God is the author of faith. And the truth that faith is a gift of God is also emphasized in Philippians. And I'll read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here, Paul is saying that even our believing in Christ, the faith through which salvation comes, has been granted to us. And the Greek word for granted means to give freely and graciously. Salvation itself, along with everything associated with salvation, including saving faith, is a gift of God, graciously granted to his elect. We consciously exercise faith in Christ, but that faith is a gift of God. And I can't point to myself that my own resources won this faith for me. Saving faith does not come from man's native discernment or philosophy. Saving faith must come by the word and spirit, not by flesh and blood. I'll read next from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16, and I'll be in verses 13 to 17. And in this passage, we see that the crowds who witnessed the words of Christ and the signs given by Christ had a decision to make about what these things meant. They were all confronted with the question of who Christ is. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. The words and deeds of Christ were so powerful that Jesus couldn't simply be ignored by the people. They each had to come to conclusions about who Jesus is. The majority, they used their own native and weak human ability to come to a conclusion. Some came to the conclusion that he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or another prophet who had returned from the dead. But then Jesus asked the disciples, the most important question that can be asked. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered according to truth. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus states the source of Peter's faith. This faith had to come by the work of God to believe divine revelation. The weakness of man's philosophy 
That didn't reveal who Jesus is to Peter. As Romans 9.16 says, God's mercy does not depend on man who wills or man who runs. It doesn't depend on human will or human exertion. The majority of the people had only weak human resources. The weakness that scripture here calls flesh and blood. And that's what they used to come to their own conclusions. But when Peter answered correctly, in faith, Jesus states the source of his faith. The Father in heaven revealed this to Peter. All of this shows that saving faith itself is a gift of God. We can't give ourselves credit for saving faith. So if someone asks, if, is faith itself a meritorious work where we somehow and we partially earn salvation by having faith? The answer is no. Saving faith is actually an admission that our own works cannot gain salvation. And faith itself is a gift, even though we are consciously exercising that faith. Before I was saved, there were a couple of Christians at my workplace who faithfully presented the gospel to me. And they witnessed to me for about a year. Then one day, it just dawned on me that what they were presenting to me was the truth, and I needed to believe it. I still remember that day, the day I was saved. It was a sudden change of my mind, my will, and my affections. My heart had been changed. But during that year, when they were witnessing to me, I was argumentative with them against the gospel. One of my arguments was this. If we are saved by faith, and I'm the one who exhibits faith, then isn't faith a meritorious work? Isn't faith a work after all, a work of my own that leads to salvation? Of course, now I know the truth, the truth that we've been examining in our study here. Faith is a gift of God. So I can't claim any credit or merit for faith. When I was saved, I believed the gospel, but that faith was granted by God. And in addition to the fact that my faith had a divine origin as being a gift of God, the fact that justification is by faith alone actually eliminates any merit of my own. My standing of being declared just before God, that's gained by faith. And that's the very opposite of earning it. It's been often said that saving faith is an extended open hand. I come to Christ with nothing in my hand, nothing to offer but my sin. An 18th century Dutch Reformed minister said this after refuting the idea that our faith somehow has merit. He answers the question, how should faith then be understood? He answered, as a hand or instrument whereby we grab and take hold of the righteousness of the Redeemer. And then he went on to compare this extended open hand of faith as like of the beggar who would receive alms of the rich man to which he must stretch out the hand, in which case the hand deserves nothing. But it's only the means by which he receives the gift. When we speak of faith as the instrument of what comes next in the order of salvation, justification, we can liken this word instrument to the image of an extended, open hand with nothing in it. The modern theologian Michael Horton says it this way. 
He says, nor is faith's justifying power located in any inherent quality or virtue of faith itself. Faith is only the instrument rather than the basis for justification. It simply lays hold of Christ in his merits. There is no merit in the destitute beggar extending an empty open hand to receive from the rich man. The gift is given into the open hand by God and the merit belongs to Christ. Since it is God who graciously grants faith to his elect at the time when redemption is applied to them, how does God grant faith? How does God grant faith? Does God use means to grant faith or does he grant faith directly without using means? Now, when I say the word means, what I mean by that, does God work faith directly or does he work through something, a something that we call means? The answer is both. Both. God uses means to grant faith, but he also works directly in us. First, let's look at how God does use means when he grants the gift of faith. When God grants faith to one of his elect, he uses his word as the means. His word. God uses the scripture, specifically the gospel, whether the person reads it or it is preached to them. In fact, all of conversion, which includes repentance unto life and saving faith, is brought about using the means of God's word. The two sides of God's word that God uses as means in conversion are law and gospel. Law and gospel. Once God causes us to see the perfection of his law and how we fall short of righteousness and our hopeless state if left to ourselves and that drives us to the cross, at the moment of salvation, this knowledge of our sin that comes by the law brings us to repentance. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which is where I'll be next, emphasizes the purpose of the law. The law cannot serve to save us. Instead, it gives us knowledge of our sin and our need for salvation. Romans 3.20 says, for by, the works, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Scripture gives us the law, and whether the scripture is read or preached, the law gives the knowledge of sin. At the time of our redemption, the new birth, we're awakened to our sin and our need for salvation. And this brings us to both repentance from our sin, a new hatred of sin and turning toward God, and also brings us to the cross for forgiveness. But the scripture doesn't stop with law. Scripture announces the gospel as the way out of our desperate situation that the law reveals to us. The scripture includes the messages of both law and gospel. The gospel announced in scripture, whether we read it in scripture or it's preached to us from scripture, is the means to bring us to saving faith. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Romans chapter 10 next. Romans chapter 10. In this passage, Paul is contrasting the righteousness that the Jews were trying and attempting to attain by their own law-keeping with the true righteousness of God that is given as a gift through faith alone. As we come to Romans 10, and I'll be reading from verses 13 to 17, Paul is referring to saving faith as 
calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. And he writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul here is giving us a chain of events that are necessary means to an elect person being saved. Someone must be sent out with the gospel. That gospel must be preached. The one to be saved needs to hear the gospel. Only then can the person believe and be saved because as the passage asks, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Then we get to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The revealed word concerning Christ, the word of the gospel as revealed in scripture, is shown here as the means that God uses to bring an elect person to faith. So God does use means. He uses his word, the word of law and gospel. But there's also an aspect of God giving us the gift of faith where he works directly in us. And this working is in regeneration the divine creation of the new heart that comes logically before faith. The elect person is brought to faith by two kinds of calling. The outward call of the gospel, when the gospel is preached, and the inward effectual call that God works within him. You know, we covered this effectual inward call before. If you remember, it's way back in session 39. So when we ask, does God use means to give and grant the gift of faith? We can answer, yes, he does use means. He uses the means of the word. We are brought to the knowledge of our sins by the law proclaimed in scripture, and we're brought to knowledge of the way of salvation in Christ by the gospel proclaimed in scripture. But the means that God uses must be combined with the work that the Holy Spirit does directly within the elect person with the effectual call. The means that God uses to bring an elect person to saving faith are the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. The word and the spirit. And the reason why this internal call, that internal call at the moment of salvation, the internal work of the Holy Spirit, the reason it's called the effectual call is that it's certain. It's effective. It's absolutely certain. The outward call of the preaching of the gospel comes to many people, but not everyone who hears the gospel comes to saving faith. The outward call of the gospel must be combined with the inward call by the Holy Spirit, the effectual call. Both of these calls combined result in conversion, which is repentance unto life and saving faith. Now, this might bring to mind again that word that we make much of in Calvinism, the word TULIP. TULIP is an acronym. It helps us remember five principles of what Calvinists call the doctrines of grace. T in TULIP is for total depravity. 
which just means total depravity just means that in the state in which we're born, unregenerate, we are corrupted by sin. We have nothing we can offer God that brings merit for salvation. Then we get to the letter U. U stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election means that God sovereignly chose his people, those who he chose to save, way back in eternity past. By name. God didn't condition his choice on who to save based on anything he foresaw in us. That's why it's called unconditional. Then we get to the letter L in TULIP. It stands for limited atonement. Christ went to the cross specifically to bear the sins of the elect, not the whole human race. Now, that doesn't limit the power of the cross, but it does specify the intent of the cross. So now, tonight, we're coming to the letter I in TULIP, which stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. It's irresistible. If we are among the elect, God will give us irresistible grace. That doesn't mean that we're dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. It does mean that when the Holy Spirit applies redemption to an elect person, that person's will is changed. Regeneration changes our heart, changing what's downstream from the heart. And since our will is one of the streams of the heart, our will is changed. Before regeneration, we were unwilling to come to Christ. Therefore, we couldn't have saving faith by our own power. But with regeneration, our will is changed, and we are now willing. Saving faith is now not only possible, it's absolutely certain. His grace to the elect is irresistible. One of the critical differences between true doctrine, doctrine that leads to salvation, and false doctrine is the true doctrine that faith alone is the instrument of justification. Faith alone. Only the open, extended hand of faith. Nothing in that hand is true saving faith. The further step in the order of salvation, which we'll get to next, justification, it doesn't come by faith plus. False religions teach salvation by our own works, or perhaps faith, but faith plus what we can bring to the table. The true doctrine, that faith alone is the instrument of justification, is what this phrase, sola fide, is all about. Sola fide. Sola fide is Latin for faith alone. And that's part of the, the five solas, which neatly summarize truth about salvation. The five solas are first, sola scriptura, or scripture alone as the foundation of theology. Then, sola gratia. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Next, sola fide, or faith alone, as the instrument of justification. Then, solus Christus, or Christ alone, as the only ground of our salvation. Then, soli deo gloria, the glory for all this goes to God alone. Tonight, we're looking at sola fide, the fact that faith is the instrument of justification. Sola fide is the doctrine that means we are justified by faith alone, not faith plus something else. If our right standing before God depended on faith plus something else, something that we bring to the table, that extra something would have to be meritorious. It would have to be a work of our own. 
And now you'd have to, that would lead to the next question. How much of that work of our own do we have to bring and how perfect does it have to be? For the person who thinks that justification comes by faith plus something we supply, the law has bad news. The bad news of the law is do this and live. Do this and live. Do this and live means do the law perfectly. Only two people have had the ability to do the law perfectly. The first Adam in the garden was created with the ability to keep the law perfectly, but he didn't, and he fell. Since then, only the second Adam, Christ, during his earthly walk, had the ability to keep the law perfectly, and he succeeded. He is our champion. Martin Luther, in his rallying cry of faith alone, proclaimed the scriptural way of being declared just by God which is faith in the finished work of Christ is both necessary and sufficient. Necessary and sufficient for justification before God. Roman Catholics, they believe that faith is necessary, but not really sufficient. They combined faith in their own works for their sanctification. They kind of combined it all together into this mass, into a mixture that they call justification. As we go on in further studies, we'll get to the doctrine of sanctification. But for now, all we need to realize is that justification and sanctification are two things, two different things. They're different. Sanctification serves as fruit and evidence of what God is doing in us. But justification, our standing before God as just, comes by faith alone through Christ alone. We do not gain the next steps in the ordo salutis by obedience. Faith itself is not a work. It does not gain merit. Faith is an instrument of justification. Faith is simply the open hand to receive justification. Once again, I'll read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 for emphasis. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes from Moses, and that's where I'll be next in Romans chapter 10. He quotes from Moses to show that justification by the law would require perfect obedience. Obedience that you'd have to render yourself, and your personal obedience to the law of Moses would have to be perfect in thought, word, and deed, in every detail. But the quote from Paul also gives good news. Now read from Romans 10, verses 5 to 11. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What Paul is doing here when he quotes Moses is to show that justification by keeping the law and justification by faith alone, they're opposites. If people claim that Paul was teaching something new, Paul could respond, hey, this truth isn't new. He could quote from Moses to show it. The Italian Reformed theologian of the 16th century, Peter Martyr Vermigli, he said this about our inability to gain merit by the law, and I'll quote from him. He said, the promises of the law are given by supposition or condition of works going before so that if these works be not performed, the promises are made void. In other words, the law makes promises, but it's not a gift. Those promises have conditions. The law makes promises, but we can't fulfill the conditions of the law's promises, which are perfect and personal obedience. Only Christ has fulfilled those conditions. Then once Paul begins to quote Moses, where Moses says, who will ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss to gain these promises? Paul says that it's Christ who's done the work. We can do no saving work. Only Christ has done the saving work. Only Christ came down and only Christ rose from the dead. Then we get to verses 9 to 11 for the good news of sola fide. God causes us in the new birth to have saving faith. With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Verse 11 puts a bow on this gift wrapping. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's as far as we can get tonight. But in the next session, we'll keep looking at saving faith. We'll look at the differences between true saving faith and false faith. And then we'll take a closer look at the elements of saving faith, which are knowledge, assent, and trust. And to wrap up, I'm going to quote from Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians about the difference between true, the true gospel and false gospels. And he says, Now the true gospel has it that we are justified by faith alone without the deeds of the law. The false gospel has it that we're justified by faith but not without the deeds of the law. The false apostles preached a conditional gospel. So do the papists, in other words, the Roman Catholics. They admit that faith is the foundation of salvation, but they add the conditional clause that faith can save only when it is furnished with good works. This is wrong. The true gospel declares that good works are the embellishment of faith, but that faith itself is the gift and work of God in our hearts. Faith is able to justify because it apprehends Christ, the Redeemer.